Blog Talk Radio.
Welcome to Black Wall Street USA. I'm not sure if you can hear me or not. We are having some technical difficulties. Ron, are you on the line? Yes, I am here. Okay. Well, I came up, but I'm having difficulty with my audio. I could hear nothing that was going on until seconds and seconds ago. We all want to thank all of you for being in the chat room. I know Ron Carter is in the chat room. I have not been able to open it up. Hey, but that doesn't stop anything. You're listening to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you, for Thursday, December the 1st. 2011, I guess we needed 20 minutes of silence to contemplate our day. I don't know. This broadcast is designed to service the African-American community in Chicago and around the world. Tonight's segment is Black Wall Street USA. You are listening to I Love My People by Oba William King of Just Us Arts here in Chicago. We love that song. Join us right here every Thursday evening for Black Wall Street USA. We're here from 7 p.m., 7.20 tonight, to 9 p.m. on Thursday evenings, and we want you to be with us to be a part of sustaining and increasing black businesses across the country and the world, and that has not changed and will not. Our host is Ron Carter, chairman, former chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, publisher and editor of the South Street Journal here in Chicago. I'm Sonia Cassandra Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network and author of Black America, Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, Book 12010, and Mr. Carter's co-host for this evening's show. This show has a national focus. Ron, are you still there? I am here. Thank you so much. We will reach out to organizations and individuals across the nation in our efforts to connect the dots the spiritual dots of our people across this land. We bring forth ideas and agendas that are already in place and let the nation know what works for us. We bring forth people across the nation who know how to make it work. It is our desire that those who work for the common good of our people meet here on common ground and share what it is that they do. Black Wall Street USA is here like a forceful and powerful positive virus sharing the news coming out of our communities. Our theme question for the year has been, what did black America accomplish in 2010, and what is the number one priority for our communities in 2011? This is Black Wall Street USA. Our call-in number is 347-326-9477, 347-326-9477. Ron is in the chat room. Hopefully I'll be in there before the night's over. Leave your comments, your questions in the chat room. Leave your company information and websites there. That's how we connect. Black Wall Street USA is in the midst of restructuring the show as we increase our outreach nationally and globally. And we will continue to share that information with you in the upcoming weeks as we restructure the show. Last week, Chicago's Black Business Radio Network hosted a special broadcast with Mr. General Parker, who is one of the vice presidents of Illinois Fathers. Mr. Parker is a lobbyist for the Steve Watkins Memorial Bill here in Illinois. It's on the table now, I believe, for a vote. Uh, but he'll update us on that. The title of that show was Children Need Both Parents. That show generated a lot of feedback and discussion on the rights of parents in the custody and care of children after separation or divorce. Some interesting details came up in the last show on child support. We thought it would be interesting and vital to take a look at the life of a young man who becomes a father at an early age. 
We are going to continue that dialogue later in the show with Mr. Parker and Mr. Mike McCormick out of Washington, D.C. Black Wall Street Chicago Chairman Ron Carter will join us uh, to give us an update on the status of that organization. We're also going to talk about a new program that we have here on Chicago's Black Business Radio Network coming up for community news reporters. We have slated a conference call for Tuesday, December 6, 2011, at 12.30 p.m. That's Central Standard Time. The conference number, and I'm going to give it again later in the show, but I'm going to give it to you now. The conference call number is 1-270-400-2000. That access code is 269-3121. Two six nine three one two one, and that's our shout out for community news reporters across the country. We're going to do our own news shows, and we will repeat that again. Once again, uh, our caller number is three four seven three two six nine four seven seven. Ron Carter, how are you? I made it. Ah, you sure did. We've been waiting patiently for you, and we're glad that you're here to get this show off and running. I don't know why it seems as though it's been a long time since I've been on the program. What happened? Oh, I know. Last, it was the uh, Thanksgiving. That's what happened. I knew something was missing, but I'm... Yeah, well, I'm glad to be back here and so that we can get this uh, show going with Chicago's Black Business Network and the Black Wall Street USA program. Uh, so delighted and uh, feeling good about it. Great, Ron. Let's uh, let's get this over with. Give us an update on what's going on with Black Wall Street Chicago because we got thousands of things to do. Right. Well, I'm going to make it very uh, quickly. Um, I think that uh, and because I am a reporter, um, and a reporter definitely have a a code of ethics uh, to be um, ethical in this reporting, and the role being a reporter and then being the chairman of Black Wall Street, the truth of the matter is, yes, we have some internal problems on who is the chair of Black Wall Street. And as we go into this uh, process with the organization, the big picture of what we have to look at is what's going on in sustaining and increasing black businesses. So when I look across my street here in Chicago on 79th and Troop, there was a black store uh, that did not have regular hours. And then all of a sudden I looked out my window and I seen that they had regular hours. And so I went in there, and uh, and within a week's time, that store has turned around, and I was impressed. And then I looked at the cash register, and I've seen an, uh, another ethnic group. The direction of Black Wall Street has to focus on actually sustaining and increasing black businesses with a dollar sign attached to it. Uh, that is the focus, and as we do so, oh, in the process of working uh, through the uh, mission of Black Wall Street, Reverend William uh, Samuels, he wants to expand Black Wall Street from uh, 69th Street to 87th Street, uh, King Drive to Ashland. That is a big area. And within that big area, there are some big box stores. So I have to ask uh, Reverend Samuels, uh, Big box stores want to be a part of a name that's called Black Wall Street. 
And he said that they don't have no choice. This is our community, and they have to be a part of it. And I say, well, isn't there a concern with the identification and the mission that they have to support? And he brought it to my attention that it's already been done. I already have the commitment of big box stores to be a part of this Black Wall Street movement. So that takes me back to when a reporter was asking me, um, isn't Black Wall Street reverse discrimination? And as I address her talking about the white Wall Street of Chicago where the near south and the near west side has built 175,000 housing units and a business that go along with it, that the the white community have sustained itself and has increased itself using tax dollars funds. So the notion of black Wall Street being reverse discrimination and the question that white corporations in the black community do not want to be a part of Black Wall Street, it is more of a misnomer. So the agenda of Black Wall Street, even with our internal problems of power grabbing, um, the big picture has to be sustaining increasing black businesses. I have to admit as well that on the west side of Chicago, we have achieved uh, – four districts on the west side, and even to the point of walking down the street and I stopped a brother that's selling loose squares, and I asked him the question, what's the difference between loose squares and Black Wall Street? And the bottom line is that we're not able to sell the pack of cigarettes where we have to sell loose squares. So that's going to be the next issue of South Street Journey as well. So we are looking at a big picture, but we definitely have to get to the bottom line of where is the money to do what we need to do and how do we network to do it. Um, and that includes the parity of contracts. So we have a lot going on with Black Wall Street, and there's a lot of internal and external building that we have to do to make things more solid. Well, thank you, Mr. Carter. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. That's Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, publishing editor of the South Street Journal in Chicago. And I'm Sonya Purdue, and I'm catching my breath here, scared to go to a break. I don't think I better break. I think we just need to keep on going here. I did get the chat room open. I did put some information in there about the show and about who we are. And uh, I want you to stay with us. I see some of our callers left, but they may come back. Our caller number is 347-326-9477. And we are here, if you're listening on the net, at www.chicagosblackbusinessradionetwork.com. We are on the net. Just want to take a, a few minutes, Chairman, and uh, acknowledge uh, we played In Love With Mango. For the past few weeks, we've been featuring uh, the inter- Songs from the International Women of Reggae CD 2011, and I just wanted to acknowledge them because they've had some great songs. If you listen to our shows and archives, uh, we've played about three or four songs by them, and I just wanted to thank them. Uh, Rochelle, who is a PR person who works so diligently on about 3,000 sites. I mean, she's really working it. Uh, so we want to say hi to Shata. Matari, Barbie, Tequila, and others across the nation. These are award-winning DJs 
and songstress, okay? And if we can, we'll play another song from them uh, later on. But you can visit www.reggaeprince.com because there is an International Men Reggae CD out also. And I think last year we featured a show with them, and we'll try and bring some of those back. But wanted to be sure that we acknowledge that, uh, Chairman, because we've been playing their music, and that is what we're supposed to do. And uh, we've got quite a few people in the chat room. If you have some questions, please leave your information in the chat room. You can also call us. It's no problem, 347-326-9477. Let's take, uh, move on from Black Wall Street, Chicago. That's sort of a Ron Carter thing. I'm about Black Wall Street USA, about reaching out across the country and sharing information and uh, bringing people into what we do. And that's part of what the community news reporters shout out is about. I'm going to give a. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what that's about, and then I'm going uh, Ron, to talk about the uh, paper a little bit and about reporting a little bit. We posted some information in uh, November, putting out a call for uh, news reporters actually to send in a three- to four-minute report. And let me just uh, read it off the project description for you. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network is seeking news reporters from all 50 states to give us the 411 on what's going on in their communities. We'd like to select two dependable people from all 50 states to give us a monthly update in a recorded MP3 format with a maximum time of three to four minutes. So if you are active in your local community or maybe you want, you're trying to build your voice portfolio or you just like a new life experience, we'd really like for you to be on this conference call on December the 6th, that's Tuesday, 12.30 to 1.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, and the conference call number, once again, is 1-270-400-2000, access code 269-3121. I'm going to put that in chat room also. So, uh, just want to say before uh, we go back to Ronnie, start talking about the the uh, newspaper. We are expecting General Parker and Mike McCormick to be with us a little bit later in the show, and we're going to have a discussion about uh, what happens to the um, the life of a young man who becomes a father at an early age. We're going to talk about the business of child support, the child support business. There's a lot of money transacted uh, in child support. And uh, some interesting things came up on the last show that uh, we'd like for General Parker and Mike McCormick to bring out to our listeners' attention. But in the meantime, you listen to Black Wall Street USA. Ron, let's talk about the uh, South Street Journal, what's coming up with the South Street Journal newspaper here in Chicago. Well, the newspaper, uh, heading on this 18th year of operation, sometimes that seems to go for a long time. Another time it seems to go for a You're breaking up a little bit. Okay. I don't, the, I don't know what uh, you can do. I would look at how, how I'm sounding here. Okay. Sounding better. Yes. Okay. So the newspaper has been around for 18 years. It seems as though within that 18 years, it was maybe a few years, and it don't, it don't seem as though it's been 18 because the newspaper has been not just a print, print the news and move on. 
advertising and public housing, from voter registration to myself being a candidate, uh, and naturally from being the uh, forming business to form Black Wall Street. So newspapers all have a mission. Naturally, there are newspapers that are nonprofits, such as the uh, Streetwise, the uh, the Reporter, uh, the Lawndale News on the uh, West Side, and I believe even the Austin Voice is nonprofit. Uh, but for the most part, newspapers are business. And so the bottom line is to sell newspapers or to get those newspapers in the hands of the public. And with that, that means that we are attracting advertisers. So it's that uh, scenario like uh, those can recall uh, Superman, Spider-Man, uh, the Mary Tyler Moore show, one thing that they all had in common was that an editor always raising their voice, calling names, I don't like this, I don't like that, uh, uh, and just being so aggressive and dominant in what they want to go in that paper because the, the newspaper editor, in which I'm being the editor and the uh, publisher, have to listen to the publisher for the bottom line, what is going to sell newspapers, what is going to bring the uh, paper money. Uh, so, But with South Street Journal, it is a different flip because I go back to the term of Frederick Douglass when he said that the, the best instrument to be used to engage our freedom is the print. And so it's a matter of a newspaper setting its own agenda in which South Street Journal have basically done that, regardless of the cost and regardless of the hands that feeds it. So the reporters and the writers have to have that same attitude. Uh, but we are going to be coming out next week. We're definitely looking for advertisers to help get that message out. Um, I, I mentioned earlier in the chat room that, Sonia, you put together the uh, book review uh, that we're going to be having in the paper. We're going to be having the entertainment uh, with the uh, wine, I think we said the eat section. Uh, we're going to have the uh, the go, which is geared to the younger generation. And I have said this uh, article that I was focusing on was, Loose Squares versus Black Wall Street. Uh, and I think that many people, if you may not notice, brothers at the AL stops walking down the street just about every block selling by the the tone Loose Squares and how they use the, a melody to describe Loose Squares. Even that we look at people that's making a living is a sad case. So we want to, that's going to be the editorial in this next issue of South Street Journal. We're also going to be looking at the the public housing compared to the White Wall Street of Chicago. Uh, we're going to be looking at what is happening with the, the districts, the Black Wall Street. We're going to be reporting on 
the uh, the west side that's identified Black Wall Street. And we yes, we're going to make some touching unzips where we do our gossip and talk about people. I wonder if we can talk about you, son. <laughs> you got some gossip on me, Chairman. What you got? <laughs> I got to I got to find some uh, gossip on you. you got to put it in the put put it in the paper. You know, and if, so yeah, that that gossip is good. It's good. It's good to be. If, if you can find someone, if you can find someone, you you can record it because I keep a low profile. Uh, but I keep my eyes open at what everybody else is doing. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonya Purdue, uh, executive producer of this show, and uh, Black Wall Street USA is here every Thursday evening, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. with our host Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago, and the publisher and editor of the South Street Journal. Now, um, the two sections that uh, Ron was mentioning coming up in the paper are new sections for the paper, and uh, I'm proud to say that I'm the creator of that. Uh, I very seldom take credit for what I do, but I'm going to start doing that. And uh, the new, the author section, we're going to have uh, uh, your book cover in there and a clickable link to one of our websites. Uh, which is going to be published in the newspaper. And what will happen, and this is an advertising and promotion for you, or if you have an event coming up, a book signing coming up, you will want to be in that section, uh, Author's Showcase. And the idea came from Dr. Constance Shabazz, who also has a show on our network, Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. And every year she hosts an Author's Showcase out at the Woodson Library. She did it this year for two weekends, two Saturdays in October. So that idea really came from her also. So we're going to have the author's book or the book signing, and it's going to uh, go to a clickable link on our uh, website, our advertising website. Now, the entertainment, and there is going to be a book review. We have someone uh, who is doing a book review this month, and also it's a way that we feature our uh our advertisers, they can have a spot there, first come, first summer for that issue. And my book, Black America Asking Ourselves the Tough Questions, is going to be a syndicated uh, story starting with the South Street Journal and hopefully in my big old vision just everywhere uh, as we go around the country asking Black America the tough questions. But that's one new section or segment for the Black, I mean, for the South Street Journal. The other segment is the entertaining entertainment and dining section in our community on the black on the black side on the black side on the black side of Chicago the south side of Chicago. I did notice uh, I did not see that featured uh, where our dining establishments and our entertainment establishments were set out and uh, promoted in that way. So it looks very good. There's a whole page for dining, uh, eateries, and that type of thing, and it can be entertainment. we got some more exciting, really, things, uh, promotions coming up and events in January that we're going to be announcing later on. But those are just some of the aspects of going on uh, with the, the South Street Journal. Let's talk a little bit, Ron, as we wait for our guests to arrive. Like I said, I'm just I'm too afraid to take a break now. I'm on I'm on a roll. Uh, the chat room is open. I want to thank all of you for being there. And uh, we do have some callers on the line, and I will check with them in a little while. They may be calling in to talk to one of our guests. Uh, I see my regular person is there. I know your number now. He never talks. 
He doesn't want to ask any questions, but forever and ever, he's right there. How are you this evening? Uh, and also, let's talk about the community news reporters. Let's. And one of the questions uh, that I know, one of the difficulties we're probably going to have, the difference re- between reporting and editorializing, because I know they're going to call in. We're talking about reporting. That's what we're talking about, reporting what's going on in your neighborhood. But I know that we're going to have a lot of editorializing coming in, Rob. Tell, tell them the difference and how they can stay away from that that particular thing. Well, you have to look at, you know. Yeah, I, Check your phone. You're, you're breaking on. up. Check your phone. Check your phone. Looking at the uh, perspective from um, even, uh, I can't even recall from being in elementary school, but I do recall from being in college taking up journalism. Uh, A reporter is writing in three phases, first, second, or third. Uh, Journalists write in third person. First person is I, 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 I. and almost like a, a poet would write. And then their second, where it's more of a perspective, it's more of a column uh, with your point of view based on your facts. And then there's third person, which is just the facts, uh, without no opinion by the writer. It's reporting on the facts, on the uh, the focus of the story, and moving on to the next story. So I do experience um, a lot of writers that want to write with uh, South Street Journal, and as they submit the stories, uh, I do have a red pen, and in that red pen, uh, I need to just start uh, scratching out these opinionated, but there is a a part of opinions that definitely is part of writing in third person because, and that's the creativity part, that's also the the focus of the agenda of the media because naturally if you write for a business publication and if you write for a, a health publication, you're looking for a certain type of message in a, in a business uh, publication versus a health publication. Uh, so if the topic is um, Red Bull, <laughs> a Red Bull of the drink, so the editor of the business publication is going to want to know what's that marketing strategy, what's going to know what is the pros and cons of the profit margin regarding Red Bull, where the health publication is going to want to look at what is the health benefits. Is it good for your health? If it's not good for your health. So the mission and the objective of the publication can change the story, and so the writer has to be sensitive to that. So if Mary Mitchell... Uh, she's an example of writing in third and in second person. And um, the, the news stations, uh, they supposed to be reporting in, uh, in third person, but you look at the news now and you see reporters, newscasters, cracking jokes in between reporting the news. That is uh, on the 
middle of second person tried to go to third. They tried to be entertaining. So the editor do want to have entertainment, but it's the creativity of the beginning of the story to attract the, the five W's, but also have a, a an intro in the content of the story beyond the headline to get people to write. So the editor of the publication is looking for that mission and is definitely looking for it if this story is going to sell. But there are publications that use the letter to the editor. That is strictly, for the most part, between first person and second. But when you are a reporter, um, your assignment neither is going to be a a feature story or a feature report or a feature um, article based on an investigation. So the relationship that the reporter has with the editor is very important because a lot of times I think if some people do remember the Mary Tyler Moore show with the office client because of stories they never write. And why Perry um, White or Superman always hollered because they did not get that right picture of Superman or the the editor of in 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 Spider Man. Uh why did the other newspaper get that picture of Spider Man and we don't have that picture? Go get that picture of Spider Man flying through the sky. I don't want to see uh Spider Man shaking a little boy hand. I wanna see him hitting somebody side to here. So the idea is to capture the the message from the standpoint of the editor or even in this case, when we're doing the broadcasting, we have to be creative in our words to attract people to continue want to listen and to continue want to read. But it is some creativity into it. Okay, but I, you know, the I I don't want to limit the creativity, but I want to be careful about the creativity. Because as you say, uh, said in your spill there, uh, you can cross the line and it's no longer reporting and it's no longer facts. Once you get real creative with that, uh, then we no longer have reporting anymore. And I know it won't be a perfect process, but we're going to try to do the, do the best that we can. Now, I just want to give a look. You listen to Black Wall Street USA, and that's Ron Carter, Chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago and Publisher and Editor of the South Street Journal, and I'm Sonia Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. We're here every Thursday evening, 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., and most of the time without technical difficulties. You know you have to count your blessings. We've done shows since December of when, um, 09, so we got an anniversary, Rod, sometime this month. That's well, the first fact, show. We sure do. Is it December the 4th or something to that name? No, that's uh, Fred Hampton's uh, uh, death. Yeah. Matter of fact, yeah, <laughs> we did do a story on uh, Fred Hampton, I think, during that time. I don't know. It was, yeah. So, yeah, anniversary well, is this month. It's this month, so it's been two years. And most of the time it has been without technical difficulties. But, you know, when you get them, it feel like it's just happening all the time. But most of the, 95% of the time, it has been without technical difficulties, given, you know, what's 
what goes on with the Internet. But you don't feel like that when I got 20 minutes of downtime. So what we'll do uh, when General Parker and uh, Mike McCormick come on about 8, and I see they're waiting all the way to 8 o'clock, aren't they? When they come on at about 8 o'clock, uh, we will we'll go a little bit over to the show so that we can fill that little space about 10 minutes. We'll go a little bit over. Now, uh wanted to give, and I'm getting I'm very excited, uh, the conference, we had one other conference call for, for community news reporters, and it was a very good conference call. We only last uh, doing it an hour. Of course, when I put this information out there, I did not expect to get more than 200 RSVPs. Uh, but obviously, it's something that people are looking for, something that fills a need or something that people are thinking about or want, whether or not 200 show up or not, just the idea that they're thinking about it, looking at it, watching it, pushing the button, uh, it means that there's an interest and possibly a need, and I'm just a vehicle. just want to tell you a little bit about what a report should include. Uh, one other thing before I say that, I also thought that it would be a, just an exceptional uh, resume addition for someone who's majoring in broadcasting, communications, marketing, uh, to add that to their uh, resume portfolio and get that experience. We hope to get some sponsors for that. Uh, and I said that I made a promise in the last uh, shout-out that I did when I put the event out that I would pay $5 for each report that we get, that we recorded that we recorded and accepted. And uh, it's just coffee money, but it's just thank you money. Um, but well, we do hope to get the sponsors. $40 for a story, put it that way, then. You can get $45 from this uh, whole network we got here. Oh, okay. So you're putting a call out for actual stories. What kind of stories are you right. looking for? Hardcore investigative third-person stories and featured stories. So we are looking for writers. And uh, we do want to uh, be creative. Um, we don't want to be so uh, so political motivated like South Street Journal normally be. But people have some uh, creativity in expanding their broadcasting story on Chicago's Black Business Network. And you want to expand it into a, a storyline. We definitely be open to that as well where we will be, um, it, it's nothing compared to the Chicago Tribune, uh, but we will be uh, paying $40 per story that is printed. And how can they contact you so they can start uh, getting their stories in? Well, just um, let me know that you're going to uh, send an email to sostreetjournal at aol.com. Uh, and give me a call so we can talk about it at 773-668-5318 where we can discuss it. And I think it would be good if we have a a, a uh, piggyback off of the broadcasting on the uh, Chicago Black Business Network to, follow, to be followed up in the next issue of South Street Journal so that we can have a network with the broadcasting and the print. Okay. So Would you type that information in the chat room, Ron, for the people in the chat room, your contact information, please? You got it. 
Okay. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA, and I just want to go over to you, go over with you what a report will include. Uh, I'm checking my um, phone lines here to see if our guests are here. Not yet, uh, but uh, I'm going to go out there and find General Parker. But uh, report can include an uh, opening, which includes your name. Like, for instance, this is... Uh, Sonia Cassandra Purdue from Chicago, Illinois, reporting for Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. And then it would include your broadcast, three minutes to four minutes, no more than four minutes. And then we're going to give you your pub. Closing, you say your name, you can say your company name, how you can be reached, your city and state, and that you're reporting from Chicago's Black Business Network. And you would do it like once a month or, as, you know, as many times as you want. Everyone, all of them won't be accepted, but as we grow, we'll be able to broadcast more of them, and we're going to put some of uh, these news reports on WJPCFM Chicago on Saturday. So that's going to be a regular slot on WJPCFM Chicago which is www.jpcchicago.com, and I'll put that in the chat room. So we're going to re- we're going to use Blog Talk as a recording format uh, for us to download your news reports, and we're going to replay them in a certain slot Saturdays at the same time on WJPCFM. So we're really excited to uh, get that started over there. Um, we're going to do as many as time permits. No events are accepted. You cannot broadcast your events. Uh, no de- donations can be requested. You cannot beg for money. You can't sell anything in the report, but you can give your company name because a lot of these people are business people, entrepreneurs, and that's fine. And you can, and that's your credit that we're giving you. You can say your company name and your contact information or your website and spread the word because you know we can repeat these shows anywhere we want to or on any of our other networks that we want to as many times that we want to. And when we're not having these de- technical difficulties, which I'm going to iron out, uh, edit out today, our shows are rebroadcast on WJPCChicago.com. So you will get uh, some recognition for your effort. It's not the $5. The $5 is just coffee money. And what I said in the last shot that I, that I did Get the coffee money only through PayPal and take somebody out and talk about your news reports, about the news reports that you have, because we are expecting this to be very exciting and be from all over the country, uh, whether it's Boise, Iowa, or Kentucky, New York, I don't know, places we never even heard of we're hoping to get reports from and to let us know what's going on. And a perfect example, Ron, was uh, Bitten Harbor, Reverend um, oh my God! The Reverend out of, and I'm trying to think of his name, Finkney. Reverend was uh, from Ben Harbor was on the conference call last time, and uh, definitely want to get some reports, news reports as to what's going on out there. You should write your article. Yeah, we still got to make that trip there. Yeah, he should be giving you a a, a newspaper article. Has he ever given you one? No, but we definitely will need to uh, make that contact to make that happen because it's a very intense story of black empowerment or the lack of in a population of, I think you said, 98% black and uh, the rest other blacks only have two or three businesses in the home the whole town, 
so yeah, we have to follow up with him. That's for sure. Oh, that is uh, yeah. I have to keep that story out there. You listen to Black Wall Street USA. I'm Sonia Purdue, founder of Chicago's Black Business Network. I'm going to chance this. It seems like we're up and we're operating. Uh, we're going to go to a short break. I uh, see Mike McCormick is in our imaginary green room over there, got to find the general and find out where he's at so we can bring our guest on. You know that our subject tonight is the child support business. What happens during the first 20 years of a young man's life when he's had a child early? We thank you for joining us. We apologize for the technical difficulties. We'll be right back with you shortly. As they go to Chicago,
Stressed out or just need me or we time? Then Phoenix Rising, Baltimore's exclusive bed and breakfast, is the place for you. Phoenix Rising offers an unforgettable, rejuvenating experience with exquisite guest rooms. Find peace and calm in the Sedona Room or Haitian. Relax in front of a marble fireplace in the Serengeti Room. Online at phoenixrising.com. Do you have a love? Just a little bit about who we are. Chicago's Black Business Network is a business-to-business service designed to assist the individual business service and growth in the marketplace. It is our goal to provide You're listening to Black Wall Street USA. This is Sonia Purdue. We're still having some technical difficulties, and I'm hoping that you can hear me now. Ron Carly, are you on the line? Can you hear me? I'm hearing you loud and clear. Whoa! Yeah, that was a boy. That was that was the wrong choice to go to that break. Was 
choice, but in life it does. We do make those kind of choices sometimes. That was the wrong one. You listen to Black Wall Street USA, and in spite of everything, our guests are here, and they're waiting for us on the line. So, Ron, let's bring General Parker and Mike McCormick on the line of Illinois Fathers. Why why we can be heard, because we want to be heard. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thank you. Welcome. All right, Mike and uh, General, how are you doing? That's Mike and General, Ron, Mike. Mike and General, okay. My pleasure having you all on the program. Uh, and even just to start it off, when we're talking about parents, fathers, and sons, where did you get the name General from? Um, my way to the man store one day, man. No, it's a long, it's a long story. It's a long family name. Uh, first son in each generation gets it, and I'm the first son in my generation. So, well, let me kind of throw off on the scenario as we get into this program regarding um, uh, fathers and sons. I can recall being maybe about eight years old, um, and. And then being that, I used to, um, you know, this is living in the projects in Robert Taylor Homes, and we had this, um, no offense to any nationality, but it was this uh, white lady that came in the neighborhood once a month. And I always seen when this white lady came in the neighborhood, all the men left the apartment and went across the street and stood on in front of the liquor store. And then when this white lady left the neighborhood and got out of her car and drove off, then the men came back. Does that got anything to do with this father-child relationship and economics? Um, where is all this coming from? All of our Okay, you're breaking up on us. Uh, are you there? I don't know if we lost General, but I'll be glad to give you a shot at that one. <laughs> yeah, we give me a shot at that, Mike. What, what's the scenario? What's the, the the psychological or the economics, and and how does that relate to uh, father and child relationship, or is that too far fetched? What I'm talking about. No, it's not far-fetched at all. In fact, what you're talking about, the name of it, uh, and let's just take a step back, actually. You go back about 45, 50 years uh, in the the mid-1960s, the what we what uh, was initiated was called the Great Society program out of uh, Lyndon Johnson's administration, and the idea was that we were going to get rid of poverty in America, and what where that went, if you step into about the 70s, what you just described was one of the rules that developed out of that program, and it was called the man out of the house rule. And in order to be able to receive benefits there could not be a a male adult in the home. The father could not be in the home in order to uh, see the benefits continue. So it's really, you know, there's some really interesting uh, uh, depictions and illustrations of that period of time describing exactly what you're talking about, where the social worker would be coming into the home uh, through the front door and dad's going out the back window and headed down a fire escape 
so that there's no presence of a man in the house. And it was called the man out of the house rule in order to keep the benefits going. And what that did was devalue the worth of a father in the eyes of his family. And I think one of the great tragedies that we've experienced is that, particularly within African American and the inner city community, what we've seen is that a, a mother, a single mother, has been basically forced to choose between the father of her children and the benefits that she can receive from the government. And if there's any kind of a program that will serve to destroy families, that's it. So when my father was telling me, uh, go back upstairs and get my cigarettes out the bathroom, or when I was wondering why my uh, father's clothes was in my closet, and I have to admit, it's a little comical, but it's a sad case when actually I see my father hide under the bed because he did not go out that back door soon enough. Does that um, have a... How does that relate to today or tell what happened back then during the 50s and the 60s and going into the 70s? Um, does that have any relationship to where we are today uh, regarding the father and the child relationships? Well, absolutely. Uh, you know, let the past and let the past be the past. Absolutely. No, absolutely not. It's not in the past and let the past be the past. We actually see the continuation of those programs played out today, where the fact is that father out of the picture is what triggers the benefits into the family. That's carried through to today, only today it carries through uh, with respect to how we work child support. It carries through into custody of children. For instance, in Illinois, uh, if a child is born out of wedlock, the father of that child, until, until his paternity has been established through DNA testing, has no legal right or interest in the child. So what's the broader message to the community when a father does not have any legal right in his child until he's actually established that through paternity testing or until, you know, what we've done is we've taken these these families and we've broken them apart, and you can see this. Uh, well, I'll tell you, this goes a, a long way back. There was a fellow named uh, uh, Fraser, uh, Franklin Fraser wrote a book called the, the Negro Family in America, and he wrote this book back in the 1930s coming out of the Depression, and he was talking about uh, at that time there was a, an 11% out of wedlock birth rate in the African-American community. In the Caucasian community, it was 5%. Then uh, shortly before Martin Luther King was, was assassinated, uh, he was made reference to this as well. And he said, here in the African-American community, we now have a 25% out of wedlock birth rate and in the uh, in the Caucasian community, it was uh, at 12 percent. And now you fast forward today, and we have 70 uh, percent of the children in the African American community that are being born out of wedlock. When we say born out of wedlock, that's the same thing as saying born without their father being tied to them. And today, in the Caucasian community, that number's 30 plus percent, 35 percent. So if we look at how this has evolved over time, this devaluation of fatherhood has been, has been happening and has been recognized 
for decades in terms of how problematic it is for the society. This is not something new that we're dealing with, but we've never dealt with it at the level that we have today. And a number of the programs that are going on uh, to address this issue are actually having the exact opposite effect of what they are intended. They are serving to, rather than than uh, foster the formation of families, they are perpetuating this idea of uh, single-parent-headed households. And a lot of these are government programs that are doing that. So when we look at, I guess, the culture of marriages and the high divorce rate, um, now, is this here a, a systematic institutional pattern, or is there becoming more of a cultural difference based on the divorce rate contributing to this uh, uh, absence of the father? And is there a social responsibility to, of the father and the mother when there is an uh, an absence of the um, of the father, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to look at where is the uh, the focus of addressing this issue? Is it cultural? Or is it systematic? And is it cultural based on the voice? Or uh, how do we put a head on it? Uh, do we make couples um, stay married for the sake of the children, or do we? Uh, extend more rights to fathers, or we take less rights from mothers. Uh, and, you know, it, it's always, um, I will, so sometimes the mother would use the the, 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 the problems with the, her, her, her man using the children. So where do, what, what's the difference here? Is it, is it cultural? Is it, is it systematic institution? Or is it uh, uh, spirituality of the institution of marriage. Where we're failing at? Hey, Ron, you keep asking. You got about fifteen questions tied on it there. <laughs> Let's start with the cultural <laughs> and systematic part of that first, and I let Mike finish. But also want to say, and I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, I see online that you got a lot of other interested uh, experts on this this uh, subject. We got uh, Mick Gephardt who's a family law attorney here in Illinois. you got Robert Farrar, who's a researcher from uh, the University of Illinois and also an advisory board member to the Illinois Fathers, and there's several others on there. So uh, it, whenever you want to start letting some of the callers chime in, ask the questions, that's all right. But I think Mike can answer the uh, question about it being either systematic or cultural. So go ahead, Mike. Well, okay. Ron, I'm going to tell you, I think the answer to you, the answer to to a lot of the questions that you asked there is just simply yes. It is a cultural issue. It is a systemic issue with respect to the way government programming is running today. And it is very much a spiritual issue as well. It is all three of those uh, in by and large. And what we have is we have actually devalued the institution of marriage in our society. We've done that in several ways. Uh, and, and it's happened not only spiritually, but it's happened culturally. We live in a disposable society now, and unfortunately relationships have, have become very similar. And let me just give you the illustration of this again. I mean, I, I just look at, you know, we can see how America's going by what has happened 
in the African-American community. And when we go back uh, 45, 50 years ago, uh, only about 17% of children in the, in the inner-city African-American community were actually growing up in non-intact two-parent homes, 17%. The, today, today, over 82% of children in the African-American community will spend a good part of their childhood outside of an intact two-parent home. That's happened in, over the course of two generations. And if we look at that, it's not just a matter of culture. It's not just a matter of government programming. It's not just a spiritual issue. It is all three of those. And, and we, you know, if, as we go forward, if we don't address this as a society and address it very soon, uh, we'll not be able to sustain this, we'll not be able to sustain our society. There won't be enough public resources in able to, available to meet the, the need and the burden that's there. Uh, and if we don't restore in people the idea of respect for families, respect for fatherhood, respect for marriage, uh, we are going to have a real, real tough time actually surviving what, what's coming down the road. Okay, so do we um, – now, where does the law fit in, uh, and is it a real tendency to focus on this divorce uh, question on um, guardianship and uh, how much does that play into the issue of child and father well i think I think that what you have is you have today uh, as far as this as far as the uh, government and systemic side of this goes, what you have today is the value is actually placed on on the father's wallet, not on the father's presence and and in order to turn this around, fathers actually contribute so much more to their child's development and their child's well-being than, than just money. But the system focuses on his financial contribution at the expense of all the other things that he brings to a child in terms of, of the child developing uh, into a well-rounded well individual. And, and what, what happens is, the, the interesting thing is, is that men and women, when it comes to raising children, both bring valuable and unique contributions to the to that child's development. But what we've done on the male half of the equation is we've said the most valuable thing you bring as a, in your relationship to your children is your money. And what the research is telling us is that that is not the case, particularly as far as children are concerned. And you think about, you know, you think about kids out there, what do they want? They're not so concerned about your money, they want your time and they want you. And we have a system that says that if you're the dad in this culture and in this, and in this society and you're not presently with the mother in, in an intact relationship, then you're basically going to have a court order that says that you'll be able to spend, uh, well, in the case of Illinois, you'll be able to spend about 71 days a year with your child. Now, think about that if you're a kid and you're used to having your dad on a day-in and day-out basis, and then you're told you're only going to be able to see your dad 71 days a year. That's, that, is, that in and of itself is abusive to kids. And we have to change this system where we say, you know what? Kids do best when they have a full relationship with both of their parents. We have to move off of this idea that 
a father's paycheck is more important than a father's presence. Hey, uh, do we have a call on the line, Ross? Yes, uh, Sonia, do we have a callers with us? Yes, sir, we do. You're listening to Black Wall Street USA with host Ron Carter, chairman of Black Wall Street Chicago and publisher editor of South Street Journal. Our guest this evening from Illinois Fathers is General Parker and Mike McCormick. Mike McCormick, is that your organization as well? Uh, I'm actually the executive director of the American Coalition for Fathers and Children based in Washington, D.C., and uh, Illinois Fathers is our our great uh, sister affiliate organization uh, in in Illinois. Okay, great. Thank you. Our caller number is 347-326-9477, and we'll simply sit. We do have a caller on the line. Uh, Last four digits, 9513. You're on the air with Black Wall Street USA. What's your name, your city and state, and your comment and question, please? For sure. Um, This is Robert Farrar. I'm in Urbana, Illinois. Hi, General. Hi, Mike. How are you guys doing? Um, Hey, how you doing, Robert? I just want to share... um, um, and um, this is a, has to do um, as a result of this recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, Turner versus Rogers. Um, I was given a um, a copy of a revised uh, form used um, for an order on rule to show cause, and as a result of the um, uh, the Turner versus Rogers decision, they now have to add that. Um, that uh, 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 that the um, parties are hereby put on notice that the alleged contemnor's ability to pay child support and or any other child-related expenses as ordered will be a critical issue at any hearing on the return of the rule. And then I know as a result of what what went on with that um, uh, with that Supreme Court case. However, I do have a question. Um, the courts um, have a um, track record of imputing income. Do you think that uh, the Turner versus Rogers decision will have an effect on that practice? Okay, and, I think, and when you say income, which I'm not get a clear understanding myself. When you say income, in which manner are you uh, saying that it has an effect? Well. Um, well, basically, and now the, the the Supreme Court case makes it clear that the ability to pay has to weigh in in terms of whether or not that person is okay. held in contempt. Right. Okay. Okay. For, mm-hmm. for for child support arrears, All which right. is an important thing. Yeah, now the right now the court has a habit of imputing income on people, income that they don't have, but they say you can, you have the ability for some reason to. Um, uh, to to make this income, even though you, you're out of a job, for example. Um, that's a very common practice, and I was wondering if this particular case will be will have an effect on that um, practice. Uh, Mike, do you have any um, ideas on this? Yeah, I, th- I think that what we have are, are you're, you're looking at two different questions uh, here, and I think that you may still see the use of imputation of income with respect to a determination of the ability to earn. And that's a separate question from the ability to pay. So you may see child support orders that are, you may see child support orders that are still established uh, imputing income on the basis of ability to earn. 
But in terms of application of sanctions, the application uh-huh. of sanction is based on the ability to pay, which is separate and distinct from the ability to earn. So, you know, it, 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 you can see where if someone is a car mechanic and has the ability to earn, uh, you know, the, the forty-five, fifty thousand, whatever a car mechanic is making today, uh, they may have an order that says you have to pay this much based on your ability to earn as a mechanic, but but could they sanction an, abil- an individual who, who clearly has no job or no ability to, you know, no ability to pay? Uh, I think that that's going to be two different questions. And what I would like, what I would hope to see as a result of this decision, is that individuals are not being incarcerated uh, because they they not, you know, they're not being incarcerated because of their ability to earn but they're actually looking at the ability to pay. One of the questions that really uh, that really I have a real question about in terms of the relationship of the state to the citizen is this, is that what's interesting about this new form that's come out in Illinois is that it requires the individual to disclose essentially everything about their financial life to the state. And I think it's really an interesting invasion of the individual's privacy privacy if the state is alleging that you have the ability to pay and you say I don't then isn't it the state's obligation to prove that you actually are able to pay and not require you to disclose all of your financial information in the process because it's their obligation to prove it so what happened to your ability to be safe in your own papers that's my question. How much authority do they have to reach into your private life and require you to divulge information when you have a Fourth Amendment right to be safe in your in your person and your papers? The state is the one that's alleging that you that you're not paying. Shouldn't they bear? And you say, well, I don't have the ability to pay. Shouldn't it be the state's obligation to actually prove that you do? Is that why, then, they use this imputation of income? Well, they use imputation of income. Just uh, originally it came about imputing income uh, was to keep people from quitting a good job just because they had to pay child support. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think imputation of income is is, uh, inappropriate. We do things things for people who are paying child support that we would never think of doing to people – who are who are in an intact marriage uh, and in an, mm-hmm. in an intact relationship? There's no when a when a you know when a either party husband or wife loses their job in an intact family, the state doesn't come along and say, well, you know, you have the ability to make this amount of money, so exactly. now you're going to have to pay this amount of money. It's it's completely disparate uh, treatment of individuals basically based on their marital status. You know, when, when, when somebody loses a job in a married family, the whole family suffers that loss of income. But that's not the way it works in the child support system. When somebody loses a job in the child support system, the child support system will oftentimes continue to hold you accountable for just the amount of money you were, you were responsible to pay as if you were working full time. And exactly. that, that is a real, a real problem. So, Mike, what is the uh, mission of the organization? What what are you all focused? What is the your objectives in addressing this issue with uh, father and child? Uh, our 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 goal is to uh, very simply to see that children 
have a full relationship with both their mother and their father, that uh, men and women that we value the contribution of, of both parents, that both parents make in, in, uh, uh, with respect to their children, and that, and that parents are actually treated uh, similarly, equally before the courts, and that we actually do what's best for our children, what we know is best for our children, which is to give them a full relationship with both of their parents. And obviously we're not talking about those situations where you have, uh, you know, issues of abuse and neglect and abandonment. Uh, but when we have parents who want to be fully engaged in the lives of their children, we shouldn't be, the state should not be throwing up roadblocks. You know, your father should never have had to hide under a bed to be a part of your life. And and this is where we talk about changing some of these systems. You know, wouldn't it be better, would, would we have a whole lot more married people if the state actually rewarded people for being married and stay together? But here's what happens. If you're, if you're married and stay together, you lose your benefits. Well, th- that seems to me to be completely backwards. <laughs> you, you know? Right. So, yeah, I agree with them, Mike. Uh, hey, uh, I think we might have a lot more callers on here, um, and I want to try to get to as many as we can. But uh, right, I also want to just answer uh, this, Mike. Uh, uh, it was it was brought to the show's attention, and this was one of the issues they want to talk about: uh, what happens to a young man who has a child, and then for the next twenty years he's into the system and paying child support, and how that affects his life. And uh, another question I had personally was, how does this affect businesses? You know, um, are there any type of fines or anything? Because I know you and I were at the Illinois Family Law Study Committee, and they kept harping on that about uh, fining businesses who didn't pay the child support on time and keeping track of stuff like that. So uh, if you can elaborate on a couple of those things, and I think Ron might try to get that caller in too, so. Well, I'll be—I'll just be brief. I, I, what we're seeing is that um, we're seeing the family and the breakdown of the family being used as an excuse to to essentially invade every aspect of our society. It used to be that that family life uh, was considered to be an area that that sh- that would be off limits, uh, but but at this point, it no longer is, and actually, people's children. Uh, I, I from I'm just you know am very convinced that people's children today that our families are being monetized, they're being politicized, uh, and and it's leading to uh, just an extreme uh, level of problems within the society. You know we have situations now where uh, you're exactly right, General. Employers uh, are are required to take funds out of people's paychecks. Uh, and remit them to the child support system, and that didn't happen in this country 25 years ago. Uh, and, and you know, we're not addressing the root cause here. What we've done is we've created a system where government entities and agencies can generate tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues by basically chasing problems that, di- that didn't exist. And this is this is it. this child support bureaucracy that you're talking about employs almost sixty thousand people nationwide at a cost of five point seven billion dollars per year. And and if you look at the efficiencies of these organizations, they are not collecting any more money today than what they were 
before they were put into place. And what I mean by that is this. The dollar amounts, the actual dollar amounts have gone up, but a percentage, the percentages of money that are being collected is no greater percentage of what was owed than what was being collected 20, 30, 40 years ago when these systems weren't in place. Yet what we've had is we have had family life in America essentially taken over by the court systems, by the government, and it hasn't been to our benefit. It's been to the detriment of the society. Okay, Sonia, do we have other callers with us? Yes, we do have another caller on the line. You listen to Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, and the ninth segment is Black Wall Street USA. Uh, caller from last four digits, 1014. You're on the air with Black Wall Street. Your name and where you're calling from and your question or comment, please. Yes, Mike Doherty uh, calling. I'm the chairman of the Children's Rights Council, and we've been involved with uh, some areas of this sort of advocacy and activism. And uh, uh, I had a couple questions, uh, or one question to ask Mike McCormick. And uh, first of all, I just want to say uh, tremendous thanks for the work uh, Mike McCormick has done here in Illinois. He has been just wonderful uh, for shedding light in a, in a logical manner on uh, some of the totally illogical uh, you know, aspects of Illinois family law that are woefully behind uh, other states. So, Mike, for that. Um, but uh, my question is, Mike, you've, uh, you know, you've got this grasp of all these other states and what they've uh, done on child support reform. And you, as you know, you know, they not only reform them often, but they reform their systems with uh, input of nationally recognized child support economists and uh in that area of figuring out the you know a reasonable system of child support and you know i'm an economist by trade and i look at illinois its formulas and they're just completely irrational to the point where i believe that a large part of the contention in illinois over child support at least some portion of it anyway is being driven by how irrational the formulas are and especially the the single obligor or uh, you know single income uh, model. And I'm just wondering, could you explain? You have an idea why Illinois is you know at the bottom of the list of 50 states out of you know one of one of uh, what eight or nine out of 50 that are so far behind and and really have not revised their child support model for for what uh, 20 years, other than to to actually increase one of the more uh, irrational formulas. Uh, but as far as actually remodeling it, reforming it, they haven't done that. Well, I, Mike, it's good to hear from you and, and appreciate the work you're doing in Illinois as well. Uh, there's, and, and, you know, the changes that come about in Illinois, they come about as the result of the efforts of a number of people. And I just, uh, you know, I, I want to say that, that I appreciate everyone that, that is out there and working on the issues. The, uh, what, I would, what I would say is this, and, is that uh, as, you were, you know, as you were referring to, Illinois uh, is what we call a percent of obligor income state. That means that the income of only one parent is considered when calculating the child support obligation. Um, the most two recent states to abandon that method were Georgia and Tennessee, and they both found that it was just it was not reflective of the society that we live in today. When you, particularly when you have oftentimes both parents working to only consider one parent's income with respect to the determination of the child support obligation. The, the, the tragic thing about this 
uh, particular type of system is that it sets the children up to be a prize in a custody case. Because if you are the custodial parent, you're not going to have to worry about or have your income considered when it comes to the calculation of child support. And, and as a consequence, this type of a system actually fuels conflict with respect to parents getting along and parents sharing, their, you know, sharing the child. And that's one of the real problems with these software systems. Uh, I'm hoping that that's going to change in Illinois soon. Uh, one of the reasons I understand that it hasn't changed to this point is is simply um, the cost of implementing a new system. The, the, to go to a different system is not going to create additional complexities. And, in fact, as you were mentioning, 40-plus states use a different model. Uh, but at this point, it is going to uh, cost. It would cost several millions of dollars for the state to uh, convert, you know, to convert its, its computer systems. Uh, and I do think that 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 is going to happen. But what I understand is that the cost associated with making that conversion, even though it's more equitable for the parents and the children, uh, is what's kept that from happening to this uh, to this point. Which means we might uh, reduce uh, money spent on litigation by easily a lot more than millions of dollars. <laughs> so well, yeah, exactly. I mean, take these cases and take this litigation, and that's what we're trying to do with with the Family Law Study Committee in Illinois and rewriting these laws. And by the way, we need everybody that we can get supporting the changes that are going to be introduced. The changes that will be introduced are designed to reduce litigation, designed to reduce people's reliance on the court, help them to resolve their own issues, and most importantly, give the children the benefit of both parents fully engaged in uh, in their lives. And and this is uh, uh, the the positive uh, effects of of adopting these changes. I think cannot be overstated for the citizens of the state of Illinois. Uh, it will it will lighten the load of the courts, and most importantly, it will give children uh, a full relationship with both parents. So is this here an initiative of the organization, or is this here a lobbying effort, or even a sensitivity? to uh, lawyers that's recognizing this problem, even when you're talking about Chicago, I'm sorry, Illinois being, um, at the, being behind other states. So what is the lobbying or the organized effort to address this here? Well, uh, let me just yeah, address that real quick. In 2008, um, the legislature recognized that Illinois' Uh, uh, Illinois Marriage and Dissolution of Marriage Act, which is the law in Illinois that governs uh, divorce and parentage, and, and there's another one called the Parentage Act, but they all fall under this this broad uh, umbrella. And and those essentially have been uh, those statutes essentially have been in effect since 1977 without significant overhaul or revision. So in 2008, uh, the legislature formed a Illinois Family Law Study Committee which was formed out of uh, the various interest groups who have uh, an interest in these issues, and it was appointed uh, different people within the legislature made appointments, uh, and different interest groups had appointments to the committee, and a committee of 18 individuals was appointed to basically go through the Illinois statutes and modernize them and bring them up to date with the idea of streamlining the process 
so that people didn't spend years in litigation and so that children would actually be able to have a fuller relationship with both of their parents. And this is actually a legislative-led uh, initiative. The committee has finished its meetings. Uh, the legislation is in the process of being drafted. And my understanding is that in 2012, in the next legislative session, uh, there should be a bill introduced that would uh, overhaul the way the family courts in Illinois work. Mm -hmm. okay. Ron, if uh, I may, I do we... have a question. Sure. Thank you. This is the Black Wall Street USA, because I'm still trying to get back to my subject that I really want to talk about. I want to talk about the life of a young man, age 16, having a child. And I want you to do the scenario for me, General and Mike, if you would, please. Because I think that um, that they need to know, and it needs to be talked about more often. That's that's my opinion. I don't think they know. Uh, well, they think they know about sex, but I don't think they know the whole deal about what's going to happen to them the next twenty years of their life. Now, let's picture this, General and Mike and Ron. I'm a sixteen-year-old male, any race doesn't matter. I'm in America. My girlfriend's uh, having a child. We're having the baby. What happens to me? What happens to me now? I get my first little job, my first little eight seventy five uh hour job. Are they gonna take child support out of my chair? Well that depends on you can if that that couple is together and she's on welfare, oh yeah, they're gonna hit that check. Okay, automatically. that's without a doubt. If they're not on welfare and they're all lubby dubby to begin with, trust me, at sixteen it's not gonna last. And when things start to turn sour, that's when the state steps in, and then they're really going to turn sour. And I've seen, I've literally seen uh, couples where the woman didn't even go in with that intent in the beginning, but before she got out of that office, <laughs> she was hating this guy who she was so in love with before, and they made this beautiful little baby. And from then that day forward, all she wants to do is get every dime she can get from him. And if he doesn't pay it on time, uh, even if he did and she didn't get it on time, then they like to tax on interest and penalties. And we might have started out paying $50 a week, okay, the minute he started getting behind. I mean, there's cases, and Mike can tell you, there's cases where there's people that are $100,000 and more behind in child support, and the majority of that is, is interest and penalties that's been taxed on. And sometimes uh, these come from kids that you find are not even your own kids. <laughs> Mike just had to go out oh. to California to help a guy with a case like that. So, uh, let me go. Let me go through this scenario now. Yeah. So I'm 16. My first job, you get my check already. Part of it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to go to college. I'm trying to get no, me a no, grant no, 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 no. scholarship. No, you don't get to no? do that. No. So no. Let me let me no? let me tell you let me tell you what happens. All right, let me just give it to you because we need to be hitting these young men right between the eyes so that they understand what this is all about. And I'm going to tell you exactly how the director, the executive director of the State of Maryland's Child Support Enforcement Program put it to me because she's seen these guys. This happens to them all the time. She says, if you're in high school and you have your first baby, she says, you can forget about going to college because you will be taking care of that baby and you will be paying child support. Because here's what happens. As soon as that, that girl that, you, that uh, got pregnant goes in and signs up with the state for benefits to be able to take care of that child, 
then she has to actually sign an affidavit that says that this is the fellow who, who is the father of this child. The state serves him an order that says, we want your DNA. They take his DNA. As soon as they've matched it up, they assign him a child support order. So that's where the Maryland director says, as soon as that happens, because when she goes for benefits, in order for her to receive benefits, she has to say who the father of the child was. So the state immediately comes after him for child support. And that's why the Maryland director of child support said to me, Mike, as soon as that happens, he can forget about going to college because we want him supporting his kid. It's not about him going to college. It's about him supporting his kid. And the next thing she said was, and God help him if he has another kid while he is in high school because he can forget about having much of a productive life at all beyond that point. That's how serious this is. That's how serious the state takes a man paying his child support obligation. And the state defines you as a man. They don't care if you're 18 or 16 or 26. When you have a child, you become obligated to pay support for that child. And here's the situation that you're looking at. They're not, they're not going to, they're not interested in you getting your education. They're interested in you paying the money that's owed because that money is owed to the state now. The state becomes the collection agency. And, and there have been some recent changes in the law to let more of the guy's child support go to the family if the family's on benefits. But what's been happening and what's still happening, uh, particularly since states have run out of money, is that his child support is not going to her. His child support is being kept by the state because the state is giving her benefits already. So his support isn't even getting through to his kids. They pass through $50 of it but the rest of it stays with the state to pay back the welfare benefits that she's receiving. And and he can really forget about it. We can't stress this enough. If you're a kid, if you're a young man and you have a child and you're not married to the mother, you have limited your opportunities downstream considerably. And think about this, if you get behind in your obligation and then you end up in jail for non-payment of support, when you come out now, every time you apply for a job and the, and the line says, have you ever been convicted of a crime or have you been incarcerated, your answer is going to be yes. Let, let me just make this very plain for young men who may be listening. For you to have a child out of wedlock at a young age will cost you for your exactly right, Sonia, the next 20 years. But the price that you will pay for that will follow you for the rest of your life. And I want to say one thing about what General just said about people who are behind in arrears. Let me give you an illustration of this. We just had a guy in Ohio who just finished paying off his child support, just made his last child support payment at the age of 91. 91. These folks don't go away. The, the state in the area of child support has a memory that is better than any elephant's memory you're ever going to run into. And and it's important that guys understand this uh, because it is, so it is a man that's 91. Right. When you're speaking of a man that's 91 that has just finished paying his child support, then is that something that caught up with him at a later age where the state 
wants to be reimbursed for uh, benefits of that child? Yes. Yes. The the way the system is set up is it allows the states to actually go back through their records, go back decades through their records, and if they don't have a record of you having paid, they can come and assess that money against you. And like I said, you know, I'll never forget the first time I ran into this. There was a guy, he's got a great name. His name is Royal Hunter. And the first time I talked to him, I thought, what a great name, you know. But the first time I talked to him, he lives out on the coast of Oregon, and he was 75 years of age when I talked to him. And he said, you know, Mike, he said, my youngest kid is in his 50s. Or he said, the kids I'm paying child support are in their 50s. Said, my ex-wife owns a bunch of property and mineral properties in Palm Springs. She doesn't need the money. Um, my kids don't need the money. They're in their 50s. They're all doing well. Uh, I get $1,100 a month Social Security, and the state of California has taken $300 a month of it on a wage garnishment. And he said, I'm 75 years old. I've got nothing. And, and this is the problem, to have a child – uh, out of wedlock or to be divorced at an early age and responsible for child support will have an impact on your life for decades. Well, we definitely have a a concern here and even the economics benefits of the state uh, to benefit from uh, those that are in that type of situation there. Uh, Sonia, as we're becoming uh, closer, um, General and Mike, would you like to give us some uh, closing remarks uh, uh, for the for the show this evening? Uh, you know what? Every kid deserves two parents in their life. They deserve their mom and their their dad. Um, join join with us. Join these organizations. Uh, you know the folks from Illinois Fathers doing great work in the state. They need. Uh, when this law comes up, when this next legislative session to change this, change these laws to give these kids the benefit of both parents, we need to hear from every community. This is not a white issue. This is not a black issue. This is not a Hispanic issue. This is everyone's issue. Um, you know, Sonia, I'm sure that you know, you know, grandmothers in the community there that uh, have lost relationships with their grandchildren because the, their kids don't get along and so they're not seeing their grandkids. Uh, we we really need to fix this, uh, you know, fix this for our children. And, and guys, uh, you know, go wide open into these relationships because uh, when you get involved with her and you have a child, you are at the same time getting involved with the state. And just, just bear that in mind. And, okay, and by the um, way, general? being a part of a kid's life is one of the most rewarding experiences. Uh, and if you are your kid's father, uh, do everything you can to be as full of a part of his life as you can because it's, it's a great reward to speak into the life of your children and to be able to, to help them grow. Right. Okay, General? Hey, thanks, Ron. I, and I, I thought Sonia said we might try to run over a few minutes, but, you know, if not, that's fine. Also. We are, we are going to go a couple of more minutes, General, because I do want to give you like five minutes over or something like that so that right. you can recap uh, on the uh, Steve Watkins Memorial Bill also yeah, for our that's listeners exactly this evening. So, do, yeah, um, you got about five more minutes. Go ahead. Okay, I, I just want to remind our, our listening audience that this show tonight, came about, especially because of your generosity, Cyan. I want to thank you again for that. But um, it started last week with the show about the Stephen Watkins bill. And what we were trying to do is try to bring a bill forward 
that would have parity for noncompliance with visitation interference as the same as you do with a, uh, a noncompliance with uh, child support. And when, when a, a couple breaks up, whether they're married or not, or just like Mike said, when you have a child out of wedlock, okay, once the courts are involved, okay, you're going to have a parent who's going to be the custodial parent and one that's going to be a non-custodial parent. Uh, when that happens, the custodial parent has a child, custodial parent gets child support. All the non-custodial parents look forward to is the visitation that they receive from that child. And when that doesn't happen, okay, that child is missing out on, like Mike said, a very valuable part of a parent that they need in their life for their emotional well-being and upbringing. And, uh, but for some reason, the state, some of our state legislators just don't see the importance in that. Uh, I guess they don't see it because there's not as much money collected on visitation interference as there is in child support. Not the point. Um, we still need uh, many people as we can calling, telling those senators to support this. Penny Watkins was in on the call. It was her son who lost his life for just trying to exercise his court order right, you know, just to go see his child and pick her up for visitation. You know, he didn't do anything else. He was accused of not paying the child support. He did that. Uh, he was accused of domestic abuse, you know, come to find out that was false, and I hope you do another show soon on that because you'll find out that all these things are all intertwined, you know, they're all interrelated. And uh, that's one of the things I wanted the people to know, but I also wanted to uh, touch base on uh, something Mike was talking about Um well, what a lot of these people don't realize, not only will you not go to college, don't look forward to any more money, any windfall profits or anything like that, uh, your income tax check, you're not getting one. If you owe child support, that's going to be paid first, okay? Forget about going to college. Uh, forget about even being a barber or anything like that because they'll snap your professional licenses. They'll take your hunting. Well, I understand, uh, I understand that if you're in the position of child support, the state would not even hire you. Is that the case? And, or I, believe, and, I don't know and, if it applies to you the city of Chicago, and, but the state would not hire you when they go after you if you work for the state. Is that the case? And that is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And all you've done is gotten to a point in your life where you're not able to make a payment. So now all of a sudden you in you in what they call a debtor's prison, which was outlawed years ago. And you can get a felony on your record for not being able to pay child support. Now what I don't understand is you had all these big banks, okay, all these big firms who who took our money and swindled it and and, 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 and lost billions of dollars and our government took our tax dollars, okay. Our tax dollars and bailed these people out just for spending our money frivolously or criminally. But you got a, a, a parent who gets behind in the child support because the economy has gone down and there aren't any jobs out there. And because he can't pay, they can't get bailed out. In fact, their bill keeps stacking up. And because you can't make those payments because the economy is bad, not only do you owe that payment, but we're going to tack on interest and penalties. And then we're going to keep adding interest on what we just tacked on to you. And tell me what's right in that. So, uh, so, so go to ACSC.org, go to ACSC.org uh, 
Uh, you got Children's Rights Council, Mike Doherty, who was on there earlier. Uh, we got plenty of people in the state of Illinois. Uh, you even have people outside of Illinois that's listening to this, and I hope you all keep calling in, uh, keep writing, keep emailing. We need your support. We need to change family law in not only in Illinois, but the rest of this state, I mean, the rest of this country. Uh, go to D.C., you know, call Mike up. He's out of the D.C. area. We need your help. We need all your support. We need to hear from you guys to let our legislators know that this stuff can't stand. I mean, if you heard Mike earlier, in the early 30s, we had 17% of, of families that were, were not intact in the African-American home. Now, in 2000, that's turned itself on its head. We may, we may be lucky to have 17% that are intact where you got mom and dad in the home. And then they're wondering what's wrong with these kids nowadays. You know, they're not achieving in school. They're acting out. They become violent. They have behavior problems. You know, there's a dynamic here. You've been taking the dads out of their lives for over 60 years now. And every time you do that, there's a cause and an effect to that. But you keep asking questions, why are these kids acting this way? Well, if you stop trying to make dad irrelevant, and you, you put value back into the family and put them back together, you know, and, and put a lot of our governments to try to get rich off of us, you know. Let us keep some of our own money. We know how to spend it. We know how to take care of our families, okay. And let's get well, back to the So as we get ready to close out uh, the program, have there been any type of uh, analysis of a surplus to the state um, versus the, the cost of administering child support, that it is such thing as a surplus based on the interest that has been placed on uh, fathers. Well, well, well Alon, case um, in that matter? Some, somebody just stated to me the other day about a hearing where somebody from the child support agency was, was making this, uh, this claim and, and, and talking about you, you can't squeeze blood from a turnip. And, and they were using that <laughs> in an analogy, you know, to, to try to demonize fathers who can't pay. But then, uh, uh, I, and I don't know the names, I guess I would have to give an air poll. He's an expert in that from Illinois Fathers. Uh, they came back with the exact same analogy where you can't get blood from a turnip. So you can keep tacking on interest and you can keep tacking on penalties. And you can say that there's $100 million owed to you, but if these people don't have it, they don't have it, right? You can't get blood from a turtle. You can throw them in jail all you want to, and you keep adding on child support while they're locked up too. Now, how are you expecting to pay child support when they're locked up? I'll never know. How you get expecting to pay child support when you take their professional license or their driver's licenses? I'll never know. But you keep on tacking on interest and penalties, and you can't get rid of child support. Bankruptcy, they don't allow that, okay? So it just keeps adding up, you know. It, 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 to me, it's a big racket. Well, well, I want to thank you all for being with us, Mike and uh, General, for being with us and um, speaking about this issue. I can say that I have been one of those case studies that you all have uh, just uh, elaborated on. And we definitely want to uh, welcome you back to get some updates on this uh, issue of uh, child support, fathers' rights, uh, 
because uh, the, the whole makeup of uh, how this tech society as a whole. So, Miss Sonia Purdue, did that have anything to do with your life experience? No, it doesn't, Ron. I'm, I'm very fortunate. <laughs> I don't have any children, and that may may or may not be <laughs> unfortunate. But no, I did not go down that road. That, that's not my life scenario. But it is very much a concern for me when I look at what's taking place. That's a life destroyed uh, totally, and it can't be reversed. And I don't think that message is getting out. A lot of messages are getting out, but I don't really think that that message is getting out to them. I don't think they see that in black and white in dollars, our young men or our young women. And I think that we need to make a difference in that, Mr. Carter. Okay, very good. So, yes, we have another program here, and I understand that this definitely, I missed the first program that um, you had with General last week on the same matter, on the same subject, I mean, and um, it is a a topic of uh, society that has contributed to um, the demise of family and, and, and children. Uh, to a great extent, and uh, how it definitely takes hold on the child more than any anyone to a great extent. So where we're at here, uh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna close out. You know, it took us. Uh, well, I'm gonna add it out the little bad part, put it all together, and make magic or something there, that'll be a t- another test okay. for me, another job. Because it's a good it's a good show and I would like to have it replayed over and over again. But uh the powers that be are not stupid by any means. It's deliberate destruction of people's lives. Uh total destruction. And yes, the young men and women play a part in it. Of course they do. But I think uh that they can make better choices given uh, more information uh, about what the consequences are. I do believe so. So I want to thank everyone once again for joining us, all the people in the chat room. You've been magnificent. Our listeners, uh, we want to thank you. Uh, despite, you know, the little technical difficulties, the, the information that was uh, given out tonight far ways any of that. So uh, once again, Chairman, should I call you Chairman, Publisher and Editor of South Street Journal, we did it again. So we'll do it again. We did it again. I was going on our, getting ready to move into our third year here. You know, this is our anniversary uh, um, year, our anniversary month per se, and uh, probably, Sonia, what we need to do is have a round table of some of our guests before the end of the year to have more like a a, a New Year's um, Chicago's Black Business Network uh, program with everybody on and uh, talk about, the, the as you said, what have we achieved in the last year and what we hope to achieve coming into 2012 as well. Well, that's oh, so you can think on your feet, huh? Well, that's a good idea. I think that we'll do that. (laughs) I think that we'll do that. We want to thank you for joining us. Everyone, have a good evening. Good night, Ron. Good night, Sonia, and all our uh, guests and people just listening in and in the chat room. Thank you all. Good night.